Just a heads up, when I recorded this, there were some audio problems, and I've tried to clean it up since, but you might still hear a little bit of something in the background, so you are not hallucinating, it's all my fault. Alright, here's the episode. Come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hi everyone, welcome back to Ghouls Only Cast. So, as always, this is Meg, and this episode has taken me a really long time to get it out. I know that first and foremost, I am supposed to be an illustrator or a drawer, as some people say, but, you know, I like to do this podcast too, and on both fronts, I've just felt not very creative lately. I think that that's been happening with a lot of people, so if you have not been feeling very, like productive lately. I am right there with you, but I'm here right now and I'm ready to do the next episode. So today we're going to be delving into the positively mystifying and seldom mentioned 1984 film Perfect Strangers, directed by cult hero Larry Cohen. Perfect Strangers, at its core, is the story of a hitman who is instructed to kill a child who witnessed him carrying out an assignment, but in the process, he finds himself falling in love with the child's mother and is forced to confront several different forces that want to keep them apart. The alternative title for Perfect Strangers was Blind Alley, and I have to say I honestly think that that title works way better in regards to the plot of this film, and the fact that Perfect Strangers is just such a mind-numbingly generic title. I mean, there was a sitcom called Perfect Strangers that came out two years after this movie, and it obviously has nothing to do with it. There's also been several other movies called Perfect Strangers or Perfect Stranger and they aren't remakes or anything like that. Like this movie is just so weirdly enigmatic and it tends to fly under people's radars, but I honestly think that it deserves more attention and scrutiny. And let me just start off and say through gritted teeth that this movie was so hard to find information on. Like the Wikipedia page has four sentences, and the IMDb page has almost no info outside of the credits, and I couldn't even really find one of those weird one-off specialty websites that are still somehow hosted by Angel Fire that have extra info on the movie. Like, it was just absolute bare bones. I consider this to be like the black sheep of Larry Cohen's movies from the 80s. Like, Perfect Strangers was Larry's just exasperation with filmmaking at that time made solid. Like, Larry apparently absolutely hated the tedium that came with reviewing special effects in post-production, having to fly back and forth from California to review a little bit of footage at a time, and just not feeling completely in control. And with Perfect Strangers, he was able to make a simple film without effects and could exercise as much control as he desired. Which apparently was a lot. He was a bit of a control freak, but it really worked out for everybody. Perfect Strangers is smashed in between Q the Winged Serpent and The Stuff in his filmography, and it wasn't even the only movie that he made in 1984. 
Larry also made special effects in 1984, once again starring Brad Wren, who stars in this movie, alongside Zoe Lund, the mute serial killer of the cult classic Ms. 45, who happened to be good friends with Brad's past co-star Richard Hell from Smithereens. Special Effects also stars Eric Bogosian, who most would recognize now as Arno, the adversarial brother-in-law of Adam Sandler in the Safdie Brothers' panic-attack-inducing film Uncut Gems. I consider Special Effects and Perfect Strangers to be sister films. They're both suspense thrillers with unusual plots, starring Brad Wren, based in NYC, directed by Larry Cohen, made the same year. Apparently Larry struck a deal with Hemdale Film Corporation that they would give funding on the condition that he shoot two movies back to back with the same crew to save money on the pretense and hope of cheaply making back double the money. I'll probably talk about special effects sometime, but today I want to zero in on Perfect Strangers. If you've listened to the last two episodes, you'll know that I've been doing an unusual little trilogy of episodes of what I've chosen to dub the Broken Windows trilogy. Perfect Strangers is the third, because if you take the scenery and actors from Susan Seidelman's Smithereens, plus actors and scenery from Slava Sukerman's Liquid Sky, you get Larry Cohen's Perfect Strangers. I go in depth on why I chose to call it the Broken Windows Trilogy in my Smithereens episode, so I suggest you check that one out if you haven't yet, but for brevity right now, this movie is set in NYC before the Broken Windows theory of social sciences was implemented, therefore you get to see an unsanitized version of the same few neighborhoods throughout these three movies, which are totally unrelated but share similar actors and locations. As I've said multiple times now, this movie was directed and written by Larry Cohen, a Manhattan native who made the bulk of his movies around that area. He was born there in 1936 and from a young age spent his free time haunting the local movie theaters to attend multiple double features a week. In the 50s, he began working for NBC, where he produced teleplays and started writing television scripts. And in this time period, he created a show called The Invaders and wrote for such shows as The Defenders and The Fugitive. The genres he wrote the most for in television and eventually film tended to be thrillers based around espionage, westerns, fantasy, and of course, science fiction. In the 70s, Larry Cohen moved more towards directing, which became what we know him best for today. He directed It's Alive and its subsequent sequels, one of which having the dumbest title I've ever heard. It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. It's Alive is an alright movie, a bit dry in parts, but still worth seeing, but I think it deserves a little bit of extra time here because the score was done by Bernard Herrmann, who did the music for some of Alfred Hitchcock's most iconic films, such as Psycho, Vertigo, and North by Northwest. After Larry made It's Alive in 74, he followed it up with God Told Me To, which tends to be one of those fixtures that you see on those $5 horror DVD compilations that have like 10 movies on them along with Night of the Living Dead or I Eat Your Skin. It's with these movies that Larry's distinct style of storytelling started to gestate and form into his most well-known movies. His movies tend to have some level of police or detective-like procedural elements to them. They tend to have some kind of social commentary bubbling beneath the surface via scathing satire. And they have this general, like, just pleasant humor to them. Like, the humor in his movies don't have, like, a gut-busting quality or anything like that. But you find yourself with, you know, a small smile and it 
you know, the occasional sharp exhale through your nose. It's just a really easygoing kind of humor that doesn't offend and it doesn't try too hard. It just is, and it's pleasant. In the 1980s is where I think Larry did his most important work, certainly his most well-known to general horror fans. He did suspenseful movies like Perfect Strangers and Special Effects, but he also teamed up with the actor Michael Moriarty quite a bit to bring us classics such as Q, The Winged Serpent, where Quetzalcoatl terrorizes New York City, and the absolute blast known as The Stuff, where a mysterious sentient ooze is discovered in a random pit and immediately sold as a low-calorie ice cream alternative. If you haven't seen The Stuff, and you call yourself a horror fan, I have bad news for you. But it's a really fantastic movie and it just needs to be seen to be fully appreciated. Now after the 80s, Larry continued to direct a bit but mostly turned back to his roots in screenwriting. He wrote screenplays for the Maniac Cop series and then got a bit more into the mainstream with the Joel Schumacher movie Phone Booth starring Colin Farrell that was really popular and has since clogged every DVD bargain bin known to man. Phone Booth begat cellular, begat messages deleted, and a strange fixation on phones that's never been fully explained. And in 2003, Cohen and his production partner Martin Pohl sued 20th Century Fox for taking a script for a project called Cast of Characters, plagiarizing it allegedly, and releasing it as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, under the guise of it being a comic book adaptation from a property of the same name. He was given legendary status by being included in the 2000s Masters of Horror anthology series amongst such notable directors as Argento, Cronenberg, Del Toro, Hooper, Carpenter, and many, many, many more. And after that, he just kind of lived his life as one of the norms until passing away from cancer in 2019. In some ways, I think of Larry Cohen as like a mini Roger Corman and the amount of work he's done across so many genres for such small amounts of money. Perfect Strangers is definitely one of the more overlooked of his 80s movies, even today, but as far as some of his other titles go, he is a beloved filmmaker, especially in the horror community, as I said before. And another thing about Larry's movies that I think that needs to be pointed out is that he had this incredible ability to churn out these fascinating movies on a shoestring budget and improvised a lot of his shots, especially in the movie I'm talking about today. Where a lot of his films take place in New York City, sometimes in between location scouting and actually getting the permits, construction would begin in a shooting location and he would have to just make the crew go somewhere else where they didn't have a permit. For Perfect Strangers as well, Larry handed Anne Carlyle, the star, a wad of money and just told her to go to some thrift stores and buy the clothes that the character would wear in the film. Anne was also tasked with doing her own hair and makeup, but felt that it was a symbol of trust that she and Larry had. In production as well, time was literally money, so there were no real opportunities to joke around. The film was made extremely fast with lightning precision. It sounds almost as soon as it started, it was finished. Perfect Strangers was released by New Line Cinema, one of the more free and open studios as far as its content goes, redistributing Pink Flamingos and producing the Ninja Turtles movies amongst countless other left field type films. It became known in the 80s as the house that Freddy built, owing its major success to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Where Perfect Strangers lacks in absurdist imagery like these other movies, it makes up for it in an 
absolute head-scratcher of a plot, at least to me. But before I delve into the plot, I think I need to give some service to our two main leads of the film. So Perfect Strangers stars Anne Carlyle, who you will remember as Margaret and Jimmy in my last episode on Liquid Sky. Her co-star and romantic interest of the movie is Brad Wren, who you'll recall in my episode before last as Paul in Smithereens. These two came together from two totally different scenes, but work together seamlessly in the movie. They both have this unique quality to their acting that is equal parts home-brewed and completely professional. Some delivery wouldn't sound out of place in an after-school special, but they just have this undeniable charm that draw you in and keep you interested. I go into more detail about Anne in my Liquid Sky episode, but just to summarize a bit about her. Anne Carlyle comes from old Puritan blood in Connecticut. She attended New York University as a visual arts student and followed every artistic pursuit that called to her from painting to short films and eventually became involved in the new wave club scene and went on to become a fixture at these clubs as a model. She lived with the married director-producer team, Slava Sukerman and Nina Karova for a time, helping them to create and spawn the bizarre and unforgettable avant-garde film Liquid Sky. Larry Cohen used Bob Brady, Anne Carlyle's acting teacher and her Liquid Sky co-star, as a casting director. And that's how she got cast in Perfect Strangers almost immediately after Liquid Sky had wrapped. Larry said that he really liked Anne and that she reminded him of Katherine Hepburn. She went on to act in a few more films, one of those roles being a bit part in Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan, the film that skyrocketed Seidelman to notoriety after she made Smithereens. After doing some small gigs for TV, Anne ultimately felt like what she was doing had no meaning because so many people around her were dying of AIDS, and she became an art therapist, doing admirable work with patients in difficult situations to help them express themselves and heal. She has an art gallery with her sister today, who was also in Liquid Sky, and she's in this movie too, and Anne even sells her ceramics online. So if you want something from her, you can buy it. Now on the flip side, Brad Wren is a horse of a different color, so to speak. Anne Carlyle is not heavily online, but is still pretty easy to get info on. Brad seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth, leaving one to assume that he just wants to separate himself as much from his past as an actor as possible, which, you know, that's completely respectable and understandable. It isn't hard to make that assumption, because in a few instances I've found his last name listed as R-I-N-N, like in Smithereens, while in his other acting credits it's spelled R-I-J-N. It's really, really hard to find anything about him. Judging from what I can piece together and make guesses on, he was also a New York University student around the same time as Anne Carlyle, Susan Seidelman, and Susan Berman, and met Susan Seidelman to subsequently be cast in his first role in her first film, Smithereens. Two years later, in 1984, Brad starred in two Larry Cohen movies back-to-back, -back, Perfect Strangers and Special Effects. The following year, he had an uncredited cameo somewhere in the stuff, 
I don't know where he is. I haven't seen the stuff in a while though. And then in 87, he had a role in yet another Larry Cohen film, Return to Salem's Lot, the unofficial sequel to the Stephen King adaptation. It seems that Larry really liked Brad a lot, similarly to his kinship with Michael Moriarty. But after that, Brad Wren just totally dipped out of the public eye. I am kind of ashamed to say that I did some shameless stalking of Brad Wren trying to find out where he went because I really like him and he's in like this just this cluster of films that I really really enjoy. He's great in everything I've seen him in. Like he isn't a traditional leading man but he just strikes me as so much like a really authentic guy in the roles that he played. So I could be completely and totally 100% wrong on this. This is all speculation but the fact of the matter is is that Rin is a pretty uncommon last name. I found a Brad Wren who studied at New York University in 1982, who transferred to a college in California and studied there until 93, got married to a woman who also has an artistic background, had children, became a high school English teacher, and really loves bicycles. And again, I could be completely wrong and have found a totally different person. Uh, it just feels really invasive looking into these things, but shit, man, that's just the internet for you. You can't really hide from anyone unless you're Paula Shepard, apparently. But if that is what Brad went on to do, that's great and totally wonderful sounding. Like, that sounds like a great life. If it isn't the right Brad, then, you know, congratulations, real Brad. You've avoided the all-seeing eye of the internet. But anyway, I think that Brad deserves notoriety for banging out some really excellent roles, great movies in a short amount of time before deciding to just dip out, have it not be because, you know, he's like dead or something. Smithereens, Perfect Strangers, and Special Effects are all absolute gems and I love them and I highly recommend them. So I first saw Perfect Strangers on a really shitty VHS transfer onto a DVD that I rented from Scarecrow Video here in Seattle. I wanted to see it because it had Anne and Brad in it, and then BAM! Otto von Werner, who plays Johan in Liquid Sky, is in the fucking movie too. Like, which is completely unexpected, but god I was so happy when I saw it for the first time. But anyway, it has since been touched up generously and beautifully by the team at Vinegar Syndrome, who decided to release it with two alternative cover arts that each have like nothing to do with the actual plot of the film. Like it's kind of confusing, but hey, so is some parts of this movie. Although I haven't been able to find much background info on this movie, I hope that I've been able to give you enough general information to pique your interest, you know, at least for maybe other Larry Cohen movies. And as always, if you want to see this movie blind, you can go ahead and stop right here and go find it. And if you've already seen this movie and want a refresher or you just want to know what happens, like, let's get comfy and jump right on into the plot. So here we go. This is Perfect Strangers. The film starts with some general establishing shots of the city with some wailing saxophone that was fairly standard for the time. It tends to be parodied today a lot, like in those Lethal Weapon movies from Always Sunny, although I heard that you can't actually watch those episodes anymore. 
There are several shots of these walls that have silhouettes of men spray-painted onto them like a proto-Banksy sort of thing, and we get a first glimpse of our male lead as he and a man in a suit enter an alley together. The whole film is bathed in this white, cloudy haze that is usually reserved for dream sequences in movies of this era. It really makes some colors pop and overall lends this strangely surreal and comforting aura. Even when the man in the suit yells out to our male lead, and our male lead turns and jams a knife deep into his stomach and slashes the guy's throat. The hitman turns and notices a toddler watching from between the slats of a privacy fence separating the concrete slab that is his backyard from the rest of the alley. He runs away and the toddler's mother comes outside, calling his name, which is Matthew, but can't seem to get her son's attention. She goes over to see what the hubbub is and discovers the corpse of the man in the suit. I want to add here that Anne is wearing stirrup pants in this scene, and my mom used to wear those, and I'm kind of thrilled that they're one of those things from the 80s that hasn't come back into fashion yet anyway. I don't like them. <laughs> so the mother takes the toddler into her gigantic room of an apartment, like if Andy Warhol's factory was just some single mother's house, and tries to comfort the kid like, don't worry, don't worry, we didn't see anything. We didn't see anything at all. And the thing is, though, is that... And one of the things that makes the plot of this movie so confusing to me is just the kid does not seem to give a shit or have any idea of what's going on. He strikes me as like one and a half or two. He doesn't talk at all. And if anything, he just seemed mildly entertained by the whole murder thing. Meanwhile, our male lead is running off and he literally runs into a three-year-old kid on a big wheel and asks him, like, Yo, kid, if you saw me again, would you know it was me? And I kid you not, the little three-year-old literally says, and I'm sorry, but just, oh my god, the little three-year-old says, Of course I would, stupid. What do you think? I am retarded. And I know we don't use that word anymore, call me an asshole if you want, but it's kind of really funny. <laughs> the little kid, he looks like Chucky in Beetle Boots, and I hope the kid went on to have a fulfilling life, but hopefully was a bit nicer than he was in this scene. And again, just to plant some seeds of my thinking here, this kid is clearly older than the other kid, and there's an easy solution here. Just don't be seen by the kid again. Like, bank on him not remembering you, and if you see him, turn and walk away. You're in fucking New York City, and he looks like he's in diapers still. Like, what are the odds that you'll ever see each other again, or if he'd remember your face through a half-inch gap in a fence? But I digress, and they do cover that later. So the hitman meets with his point of contact in a graveyard, as you do, and this guy goes the fuck off on the hitman about how he was always so careful and now he's gone sloppy and he may as well have been sounding off an air horn while he carried out his assignment basically. That this two to three year old would totally be able to point him out in a lineup or tell the cops something, which I don't really buy personally and it seems that neither does the hitman, but he still follows the mother and toddler on their bike. Or, I guess, the mother and a really tiny baby doll with its head turned sideways that's supposed to be the toddler. But anyway, he's following them 
very inconspicuously, a few inches behind them in a convertible with the top down and the radio blaring a news story about the murder he just committed. The mother, Sally, talks to her friend Malda, which... Forgive me all the Maldas out there, but that kind of sounds like a made-up name. Anyway, she talks to her friend Malda in the thrift shop that Malda runs, which I think may be the same one from Desperately Seeking Susan that was called Love Saves the Day in real life. Like, I'm 80% sure that it's the same shop, but don't, don't quote me on that. Her friend is very much in the camp of, don't tell the cops a damn thing, why should you help them when all they do is push us around, like, just very ACAB about the whole thing, and hypothesizes that there was a probably a totally perfect, normal, and good reason that the guy was killed, so why would you even want to interfere? Like, Malda gets really hung up on the idea that what if she was a woman who had had enough of this man's abuse and finally took back her power by killing him? Sally doesn't think it was a woman by the sound of the footsteps she heard leaving the scene, but her friend keeps pushing that if it was a woman, she would essentially be screwing over a sister. Sally asks her why everything has to be so political with her, and she asserts that one day, men will all just have to pay. I'd like to point out here that this Malda character is played by Anne Magnuson, who went on to play a character in a Susan Seidelman movie called Making Mr. Right, uh, who falls in love with a cyborg man played by John Malkovich. It's a pretty good movie. Malda just kind of strikes me as like a Valerie Solanus type feminist, like the woman who wrote the Scum Manifesto, which was all about how men were incomplete women and an organization needed to be formed to eliminate the male sex and for women to overthrow the government and reform the world. There's an early on episode of the Venture Brothers where there's like this like the group from Scooby-Doo and there is a the character who is supposed to be like Velma is Valerie Solanus but Scum stood for Society for Cutting Up Men. She became relatively infamous for attempting to murder Andy Warhol over a long dispute about money and alleged theft. She fired three shots at him. Two bullets totally missed him, but the third somehow managed to hit his esophagus, both his lungs, his spleen, his liver, and his stomach. And a few years later, Andy Warhol made a film satirizing her, starring two of his trans superstars, Candy Darling and Holly Woodlawn, who I both love. I am digressing a bit here, but it really is an interesting story, and this Malda character is just such a radical feminist to the nth degree, and this is coming from someone who is a feminist. But anywho, Malda brings up Sally's ex named Frank and how the police likely won't help her out again if he came and tried to steal Matthew away from her. Sally seems to have heard enough of this and just leaves. Elsewhere, the hitman is spray painting a silhouette on a wall to this really bizarre, unshazamable song that sounds like a montage parody tune and he's having this strange little conversation with himself like while he's painting like who's that who is he it's me i am who it's me it's kind of weird but i live in a city and i've seen way weirder out there uh, then he starts staking out Sally and Matthew, seeing if Matthew takes notice of him when he walks by them on the sidewalk. He gives Matthew two opportunities to stare at him, and Matthew doesn't. He does not care. Like, he seems to be aiming for a third attempt when Sally kind of surprises him from behind and starts just hitting on him, asking, like, Oh, you lost? 
Do you see anything you like? Like, there's this little cutaway to acknowledge that Matthew does recognize him, but the kid really doesn't seem to care. Either he's too young, he's a little psycho, or he's not a snitch. Either way, this hitman is golden if he just walks away. But oh no, Sally asks him, do you see anything you like? And yeah, yes he does. And one thing that I love is that you finally get to see Anne Carlisle and Brad Wren in frame together and they have the same fucking hair. Like the same exact hairdo and they're almost the same height. Like like attracts like, I guess. The hitman introduces himself as Johnny and offers to carry Matthew while they walk together. They go to a cafe and they start talking about Johnny's parents and he finds out that Matthew's dad isn't even in the picture at all and starts laying on the full pickup artist handbook like, I don't believe you could possibly be single. I bet all the guys are after you. But Sally thinks that she has a tendency of scaring men away and coming off as unapproachable, especially since she's always hauling a baby around. Johnny makes it clear that he doesn't mind carrying around Matthew like he's his own and offering to walk Sally home. Keep in mind, Johnny is a murderer for hire and has basically been instructed to kill this kid before he can blab about the murder. Instead, he's carrying the kid around and sweet-talking his mom like, like we're watching a rom-com or something. Sally just flat-out refuses to let Johnny walk her home, but says that he can meet her at a precise address tomorrow night. Johnny gets cleaned up and goes to see his boss at a barber shop. His boss offers to cut his hair, and while that's happening, he puts serious pressure on Johnny to get rid of the kid before he can talk, that they want everything just totally clean. Johnny argues that the media will pick up on it if a kid shows up murdered, and the boss tells him that kids have accidents all the time. He advises Johnny to get close to Sally, so close that she trusts him with Matthew, and when she isn't looking, see to it that the kid has an accidental death. The next day, Sally is handing out flyers for a Take Back the Night rally that will be happening later that night. Matthew, meanwhile, is passed out like a frat boy after finals on his stroller around the corner. Sally goes back to check on him, and lo and behold, he's gone. The girl she's with, who's dressed like James Spader in Crash, is like, maybe he went home. Like this toddler who can barely walk straight just decided, alright, I've seen enough here, and just flipped on his homing device or something. Sally is like, no, he couldn't have gone home. In the tone of like, well, maybe he went out for cigarettes. He usually tells me when he's going to wander off into the middle of the street. And Matthew is seen walking hand in hand with an unseen man, and Sally runs around frantically trying to find him. The man picks up Matthew and begins running with him, and it's a guy who we've never seen before. Bet you thought it was going to be Johnny too, huh? <laughs> nope. Like in real life, a lot of the time when a kid gets snatched up, it's actually an estranged parent that's done it. In this case, Matthew's father, Fred. He begins running with Matthew while Sally spots them and starts chasing them down the street. Now, a very, very important thing to note here. Larry Cohen did not block off the street for this shot. The shot is totally crowded with 
completely normal, non-acting people who were just walking down the street as normal that day. So you've got Anne Carlyle chasing this guy down the road screaming, stop, give me back my son. And all these oblivious people turn around and stare and some start darting into the street and running towards John Worley, the actor playing Fred. You see some bystander effect happening too, which is totally normal, but always kind of upsetting to see. I mean, you always hope that if something like this happened to you in public, that everyone would just spring into action around you to help, especially if someone was literally running away with your child. But most of the time, people will just freeze in terror and watch. But in the next shot, you see Larry Cohen in the shot kind of blocking the actor and keeping the gathering crowd away from him because apparently there was a real serious threat of this actor getting the living shit kicked out of him by the people who had absolutely no clue that there was a camera nearby catching everything. Usually these scenes are blocked off to the public or Larry could have just cut this, told the crowd what was going on and did another take, but instead he decided to just keep going. And the result is so much better than if anything was meticulously planned. You get to see real normal people in NYC reacting to what they think is an actual kidnapping. Fred tells Sally that he has a right to see Matthew, but she reminds him that the court said the exact opposite. He says that she lied to get sole custody of Matthew, and they argue some more in the street before Fred vows, like Skeletor before him, that he'll be back. Later that night, Johnny meets up with Sally for the Take Back the Night rally and vigil, and I would absolutely guarantee that this is a totally real rally and not one made up of extras for the movie. Like, it sounds strange to say, but it looks way too authentic to be a movie protest. Like, you could never mistake this for a Pepsi commercial is what I'm saying. Tons of people are looking directly into the camera and you can see the shadow from whoever is handling the camera. The actress playing Anne's friend in the movie pushes Brad and Anne's real life sister shoves him too and then a few of these other women who have absolutely nothing to do with the movie start shoving him too. Like, it seems to be totally real. Sally takes Johnny back to her place after the rally and puts Matthew to bed with a teddy bear and a huge pamphlet called The Emancipation of Women. You know, just some light reading for the toddler to send him off to Sleepyville. You know, one of the classics like Goodnight Moon or Corduroy Bear. It's implied after this that Sally and Johnny have sex because he carries her to the bedroom and then it cuts immediately to a guy in a deli chopping up the biggest salami I've ever seen. Sally asks Johnny what he does for work and he tells her that he's a criminal, but not in the stabby sense, but in the helping people illegally install cable on their TV sense. It cuts to Matthew and he looks so pissed to hear this and is just shaking his head in disapproval, either because he is a pint-sized chill for the FCC or he's like, uh -huh, no, I know what you do for a living. Tell her the truth. Chicks love violence. Apparently, Larry Cohen directed this kid, whose actual name was Matthew as well, like he was a little adult, that he would sit with him and be like, okay, Matthew, when I do this, you're going to do this, all right? And everyone around thought that Larry was just like this total weirdo for directing a kid like this, but Larry said that the kid always did exactly what was asked of him. Kids can often surprise us with just how much they can understand from a very young age, and Larry seemed to be able to tap right into that. It's actually really sweet. 
At this point, Johnny starts grilling Sally on why Matthew isn't talking yet, and she says that he's shy, but he can say a few words like mama and bug, and can even string a couple together. For example, kill bug. The fucking jig is up, the little bastard can say kill. This seems to visibly rattle Johnny, especially when Sally says that soon Matthew will be able to talk nonstop and you won't get him to shut up. Wonderful. Sounds great. When Johnny leaves, some people are covertly taking photographs of him, but for what reason we don't quite know yet. He finally returns to his own apartment and girlfriend, who happens to be Kitty Summerall, the blonde girl who played Richard Hell's wife in Smithereens. She also had a tiny role in special effects and then this movie. Then she just dropped out of acting to focus on her music career but his night with her is pretty short-lived and the next day he's back having a happy new relationship montage with Sally to a really annoying song that I do not like. And huh, there's a very, very super gratuitous sex scene and I get so uncomfortable when I watch it because Anne does this thing where she's like bending her neck against the bed while she's on her back and she, like her neck looks like it's about to snap and it freaks me out every time. So her ex-husband Fred seems to be able to sense the sex that he is not having and starts skulking around Sally's place and fucking with Johnny's car, even pissing on the seat. But enough of that because it's time to introduce the real star of this movie. In this scene, Sally and Johnny have given Matthew the opportunity of a lifetime because the guy with an axe at the beginning of John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, the guy who asks Sam Neill if he's ever read Sutter Kane, has this pickup truck with this strange homemade merry-go-round fixed to the back that's made out of what looks like Denver Broncos colored chain link fencing. It looks horrendously unsafe and looks like it's on par with a windowless van with free candy and puppies inside painted on the outside. This merry-go-round is a groundbreaking character in independent cinema. Never have I been so excited and terrified of a structure in my life. It looks like a disaster waiting to happen, which maybe that's what Johnny was hoping for. Maybe... I don't know, but good lord, the things that random dudes could get away with and people would actually pay for the privilege to experience. Like this, When I was a kid and I would see an ice cream van that played the music and it had the ice cream stickers, but it was being run out of an actual van meant for big families and crappy high school emo bands. Like, sure, the ice cream is the same, but there is something distinctly telling me that this van is sketchy and might lead me to my doom. That's the sort of vibe you get from this merry-go-round. But anyway, now it's time for the detective procedural stuff. Remember, there was a murder after all. A lieutenant goes to Sally's with a stack of photos that contain shots of people of interest that they've been looking into for some time. Sally makes it very clearly known that she doesn't know anything and has no intention to cooperate with their investigation and asks him to leave so she can do work. Matthew finds his way onto the table and starts going through the stack of pictures while Sally and the lieutenant argue with each other about if her ex-husband is involved. Matthew finds a picture of Johnny in the stack and starts walking around with it. But this just pisses off the lieutenant and he snatches the picture without looking at it and stuffs it into the middle of the stack. 
After he leaves, Sally calls Fred at his art gallery to apologize and wants to meet up to talk some things over. After a whole lot more arguing, they agree to meet up the following day and we discover that Fred has been drawing a portrait of Johnny from memory. He takes it to a private investigator, played by Otto von Werner, the gargantuan German man who played Johann in Liquid Sky, who was also a nosy guy there in his own right too. I absolutely flipped the first time I saw this and he came on. This is the culmination of the cross-pollination of Smithereens, Liquid Sky, and Perfect Strangers. I absolutely love it. Fred is under the impression that Sally has no idea who Johnny really is and wants to know what his background is, that there's just something about him that really creeps him out. But the detective seems to be actively trying to discourage Fred from giving him money, like, why don't you move on? Making a baby is nothing. Look, see, I do it all the time. Why do you care? Can't you handle your wife doinking someone else? Make you feel like shit? What's your problem? Are you a freak or something? Like, he doesn't really say that, but he basically does. Does. Like, he's thinking, please don't give me work, I want to go home. But Fred is very insistent that he doesn't want to know anything about what Sally's doing, he just wants to know what the deal with Johnny is. Fred meets up with Sally afterwards like they planned and they talk over their relationship and the fact that Fred went overseas but left money for an abortion, but when he came home Sally had split and Matthew was there. Fred seems to want to be back in their lives, but Sally really doesn't want that. Fred promises to stay away, and Sally makes him promise not to send any money either, which, uh, I think is a terrible idea, but okay. Uh, while this is happening, Johnny is giving Matthew a bath back at Sally's, and is having this really in-depth, one-sided conversation with him about the movie E.T., and using it as a metaphor for the relationship that he and Matthew have. Like, he's full-blown telling this little naked kid, you better never tell anyone that you saw me cut that fucker's throat back there. Like, it's such a bizarre scene. Later on, we see the private investigator following Johnny around the city, and Otto seems to be eating something new every time the camera lingers on him. Like, he's going real hard on a piece of pizza, and then it cuts away, and suddenly he's got a gigantic soft pretzel. Like, <laughs> I love it. Eventually, they get into a bit of a car chase, and Johnny leads them to an abandoned building at the docks. Johnny sneaks up on Otto and stabs him to death while a positively delightful view of New York skylines in the background. He spray paints a silhouette, which seems to be something that he does every time he kills somebody. He spray paints a silhouette. Uh, he snatches up Matthew and takes Matthew back to his own apartment. He chills back with Matthew and they share a couple brewskis together until, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, some mob guys are at the door. Johnny hides Matthew away, but the kid starts wandering around the apartment and it kind of follows that whole comedy of errors thing. Like the second the guys turn away, the kid darts across the room, that sort of thing. Matthew gets into the fridge and starts trying his damnedest to open a beer, but it isn't all Benny Hill or anything like that. The mob dudes still seem pretty intent on Johnny killing the kid and they're just like, you know, time's a waste and hurry up and kill the kid, but he is able to shoo them away before they ever see Matthew. Later on, the lieutenant is stalking around the alley while Matthew and Johnny are playing in the backyard and tries to convince Matthew to make his mom let the lieutenant in the house when he comes around the block. 
Johnny just tears ass out of there, and Sally is less than pleased to see the lieutenant, as you could probably expect. He threatens to take her in for 72 hours and have her lose Matthew. She acquiesces and starts going through the photos, pulling out a random one and being like, oh, this guy's been around here. And the lieutenant is so stoked on hearing this that he leaves without taking the rest of the pictures, and Sally just sets them aside. That night, Johnny meets up with some mob guys in the graveyard again, and he's introduced to a heavy named Carl, who's played by Bill Faberbacke, who does the voice of Patrick Starr on SpongeBob SquarePants. He says that Johnny has pissed everything away for a kid and starts beating him up. Undeterred, Johnny meets Sally at a cafe the next day and suggests that they all move to California. Johnny is really pissed about Sally inadvertently making herself a material witness after picking a picture out of that cop's stack and asks Matthew what he thinks that Johnny should do. And to respond to Johnny, Matthew picks up a knife and starts making crazy stabby motions with it. And I mean, yeah, maybe. Hey, maybe this kid should be moving into the organized crime ladder in no time, you know? Johnny manages to wrangle Matthew away from Sally and takes him to a park. He starts pushing him really, really hard on a swing with the intent of injuring him, but Fred comes by and grabs the chain, which makes Matthew fly off the swing and eat shit on the pavement. For a second, they try to do the ending of Airbud with Matthew, where they both call for him and see who he wants to go to, but he just sits there staring at them. And eventually, Johnny gets tired of this and sucker punches Fred right in his face and starts absolutely wailing on him. And Sally happens by and yanks Johnny away, but Johnny shoves her away and is like, look, he's never gonna go away unless I practically kill him right now. I can't believe you feel bad for this guy right now. Yeah, I may have broken his jaw, but my fucking hand hurts right now, lady. Why don't you care about my hand? Like, he is completely showing his true colors in that moment, and Sally can definitely tell, but she opts to protect him by saying that she's going to take Fred to the hospital, but tell the cops that a stranger jumped him. Sally quickly dumps Johnny by asking for her spare key back, and Johnny runs off. The cop that responds tells Sally to leave, and later she talks to Johnny on the phone. He tries to make excuses as to why he went so crazy on Fred, but Sally insists that she just needs some space for a while. The next day, Sally takes Matthew to ride the damn pickup truck merry-go-round yet again, and leaves him briefly with the guy who drives the truck. Sally walks away for a moment and the guy sits down to drink a beer, which is a great idea if you're not only dealing with children, but also driving for a living. Johnny comes out of nowhere and steals the truck with Matthew still spinning relentlessly on the back of it. He takes the truck to the abandoned building at the docks. He gets Matthew out and says they're going to play hide and seek and starts counting. Matthew makes a mad dash to go hide and Johnny starts walking around looking for him, calling out to him the whole time like a low-level mafia Jack Torrance. Matthew happens upon the corpse of the private investigator and Johnny catches him. He takes Matthew to dump him in the water and it cuts back to Sally in her apartment whose friends have taken her home and are saying that it was probably Fred who stole Matthew. She is in a really weird emotional state, understandably, and gets a phone call from the police about the lieutenant needing to pick up those photos. Sally goes through the stack again, and lo and behold, she finds the photo of Johnny. And speak of the devil, he's trying to break his way
way into her fucking apartment. Fred is also trying to get to the apartment but gets held up at gunpoint by Sally's friend Malda from the beginning of the movie, who expressed at the beginning that she couldn't wait to shoot a man one day. She asks where Matthew is, but doesn't buy it when Fred, who is totally messed up looking and covered in bandages by the way, says he has no clue and is trying to find that out too, and he calls her crazy. Johnny breaks through the door finally, and Sally stabs him in the chest with a massive kitchen knife. Behind him is Matthew, totally safe, and it shows at the docks one of Johnny's spray-painted silhouettes of two adults and a child. And that's the end of the movie. Some say that Malda is holding Fred at gunpoint even to this day. I seriously don't know what happened there. Like, why didn't they get that part resolved? Like, did she shoot him? It seemed really implied and like she really wanted to. Uh, Fred is made out to be a monster for the most part, but other than the initial snatch and run of Matthew, he didn't act particularly bad at all and seemed to have the absolute correct feeling about Johnny that even Sally didn't have. And that was Perfect Strangers. It is a really easy and enjoyable watch, and I think that if you get a chance, you should totally check it out. There's the messed up merry-go-round, the acting is good, the settings are interesting, and there's like this feminist angle and even radical feminist angle to it. It's just overall a very good movie that almost no one talks about. I often wonder if it would have gotten more traction if it would have had a better title or at least used Blind Alley 100% of the time rather than settling on Perfect Strangers. And I guess that concludes the Broken Windows trilogy. These episodes were a lot of fun to do because when I went into it, I knew that they had similarities, but as I kept researching, I found more and more commonalities with these three movies than I could have ever guessed. I recommend all three of them, but I suppose I wouldn't be doing an episode on a movie if I didn't think it was worth watching, but, well, one of the longer ones anyway. That said, the next episode I'll be doing is another fun-sized one, and then who knows what's next, the sky's the limit. I really hope that you enjoyed this journey into a totally different New York City and liked learning about all these little connections as much as I did. So until next time, take good care. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul.